Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation as usual as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed our opening music called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, you can now download it on your favorite music platform, um, which features My Adore. I just love that song myself. And for those of you that are new to the show and don't really know what we're about, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. Our goal is really to raise all voices, big and small, those diagnosed, those that care and serve them, advocates, researchers, and more. And today you will be able to join the conversation by calling in at 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. And before I start our conversation with our wonderful guest, this is going to be a fantastic topic on volunteerism and just changing it up and really grasping a hold of a, of a huge group that's out there that wants to help. I want to give a shout out to um, a couple of organizations. One is the Memory Cafe Directory, highly recommended, great support group for people with dementia and their care partners. You can find out which ones are doing virtual cafes by going to memorycafedirectory.com. Also check out Live to Be Healthy, and that's Live, the number two, letter B, healthy. If you're looking for some exercise routines, we would uh, they would love to talk with you there. They're doing some video stuff. And um, our next show on Thursday, we're going to be talking about making travel timeless with Jane Doherty. And then on Friday, we will be, or on Sunday, we'll be doing a COVID special again, talking with people around the world on how they are coping um, with this time that we are um, self-isolating and social distancing, but still staying connected. And last, I want to thank all of our listeners for your likes, your clicks, your shares. You have been unbelievably supportive and really expanded our reach here at Alzheimer's Speaks. So I just want to thank you so much for your continued support, and I hope you will continue to do the same. So our guest today is Dr. Paul Fakowski. He is an author, a musician, an entrepreneur, a teacher, a public speaker, and a consultant who strongly promotes and advocates for expanding the role of volunteers in long-term care which is greatly needed right now. And I know some people are thinking that's probably not possible, um, but we're going to talk about that because Paul really believes that these trusted volunteers have, uh, when they have the training and the skills to enhance the person-centered care and that they can really be a valuable resource to the staff in general as well as the families. And he has this newly released book, and I love the title, it's called Creating the Volunteer Force, Rethinking the Way We Use Volunteers in Long-Term Care. And his books are sold wherever you want to get books, but you can go to his website and, uh, and get one there as well. So welcome, Dr. Fokalski. How are you doing today? Hey, doing very well. Thank you very much. And uh just want to thank you for the opportunity to be able to share with your audience uh, about my thinking and about volunteers. Wonderful. I, like I said, I'm excited to have you with us. And before we get into our line of questioning, I always like to ask um, every guest if they've been personally touched by dementia with their own family or circle of friends. 
Well, of course, you know, um, I've had a couple of experiences as I think about that. My grandfather um, had arterial sclerosis, and uh, so it really was very similar to uh, Alzheimer's in that, there, you know, the dementia was there, hallucinations and, and so on. And we really, this was 50 years ago, so I'm kind of giving away my age, but uh, we, didn't, we really didn't understand what was going on with him. And I think we had this idea that, well, you know, he's in his 70s now, and this is a normal part of aging. You know, we're, we're senile and we get older. And so I don't know how much, you know, it was just a different way of thinking. Of course, now, 50 years later, you have a completely different understanding. The other way it touched me too, uh, Lori, as I was thinking about this, you know, I got started in this because I have a, a, um, a bachelor's degree in uh, music performance. So I play woodwind instruments. And so I took my saxophone into a nursing home uh, 27 years ago to play some music for people. And I remember being in the memory unit and I was playing an old hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. And I was in a memory uh, unit and people just stopped and started singing with me. Mm -hmm. And it just really touched me that I was able to connect with them in such a way uh, and uh, so I did that for almost 25 years, going around nursing homes and playing, and just just remarkable. I even had a woman sing with me one time. She sang the alto line. She sang all three verses of a song, and she was singing harmony with me. Wow. And uh, so, so it really taught me, uh, one, they're still there. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, they're not there anymore. No, they're still there, and uh, we just have to find out how to reach them and two, just to be able to touch them through the music was just, I mean, it was, for me, it was very, very uh, rewarding from that standpoint. So those were my experiences. Okay. Wonderful. Well, I uh, appreciate you sharing that. It's, you know, it's rare when I ask somebody that question and they haven't been touched. I mean, it just, you know, for most of us, it's just a matter of time. And, um, and so again, I, I appreciate you, um, sharing that with us. Why don't we start with what exactly are you promoting with volunteer leader? Well, um, you know, I've been training volunteers for nursing homes for, well, close to, uh, as I said, uh, maybe 20 years, 25 years. And um, over time, uh, really came to understand the impact that a person can have uh, and making those uh, connections. And, uh, you know, we all need to feel that sense of being connected, you know. And so mm-hmm. when that's removed, what happens, you know. And so uh, over time then, uh, we really ramped up the program. Um, and uh, I really began to realize that there are people in our communities that will really step up to the plate. And I think we're seeing that right now with this COVID-19 virus. I mean, there are volunteers stepping up and doing amazing things around the world right now. And um, they could be doing that in our nursing homes as well. And I know that there's a lot of issue with that. We can get into that a little later. But the idea is, is that there are people in our communities that are somewhat successful in their careers, uh, and now they're looking to give back to the community in a meaningful way, and they want to make a difference, and they want to be able to see the difference that they're making, and they want training. They want to go into a situation feeling prepared. Uh, it's also online, and um, they want that, and then they want ongoing training. They don't want to just have that initial training. They want on. They want to grow in the experience. And they want to be able to touch people in a meaningful way. So seeing that in my own experience, I know that that can't be unique to just where I live, but that's all over our country. And um, I've seen it happening in other places. And uh, my, the, the big model that I hold up is uh, Baycrest up in uh, Toronto. They have uh, 500, some 500 beds. They have over 2,000 volunteers working in every department of that uh, uh, 
facility. It's just amazing when you see it. I spent four days there a couple years ago touring and having uh, the uh, uh, director of volunteers take me through the uh, program, and it's just it's it's mind-boggling. So when I came back, I said, we've got to do that here. We've got to figure this out. And uh, so, again, you know, this isn't about free labor. You know, everybody says, well, you're promoting free labor. No, I'm not promoting free labor. What I'm promoting is creating a workforce, a volunteer workforce that will supplement the staff. Um, a researcher once commented in his article that a nurse is, well, he asked the question, is a nurse helping someone to get dressed a good use of resources? And the answer is probably not, because that nurse has been trained to do some very technical things that a that other people wouldn't be able to do. And so can we train volunteers to dress people and to help them eat, to uh, help them comb their hair, you know, non-medical kinds of supports, mm -hmm. and uh, freeing that nurse up to do the more technical things that they've been trained to do, you know. And uh, how many times does a call light go off because somebody just wants somebody to talk to? And so the CNAs, the nurse aides, are running up and down the halls answering these call lights when really all the person needs is just that attention, that sense of, hey, somebody cares about me. Yeah. So that's what I'm pushing. And, uh, and again, I have examples, in, and there's plenty of research to back this up. So it's just how turning the heads of the owners and the operators to, make, to, to see this as a viable resource. It's happening in hospice. You know, hospice is required to have volunteers. 5% of their service time has to be volunteers. And uh, so there's a lot of good models out there. Anyway, you can see that I'm not short-winded. <laughs> Sorry. No, no I, I really I appreciate everything that you're saying because I've kind of been screaming that from the top of my lungs as well. And I know a lot of communities just feel like, well, we, you know, we need someone to supervise them and we don't have that in the budget. Um, you know, we don't have that in the budget to do that. And what they're not seeing is, you know, the budget that they'll really be saving in the long run by getting this set up and being able to work more efficiently and effectively and, you know, creating, in my opinion, this was my experience anyways, you know, you can, you can take a person who can be, you know, that community's worst nightmare and, and change them into a raving fan. If you listen to what they have to say and, you know, you're open-minded because there's a lot of good ideas out there. And sometimes people get stuck in that mode of, well, we've always done it this way. Or they don't know what they're talking about, but they don't know what they're talking about because maybe they haven't been educated on what's really going on. And to me, that's a really worthwhile conversation. And, um, and, and I, again, I just think that that is a, a very critical piece, especially, you know, right now in this COVID situation, we have so many people that could help communities, I believe, in so many different ways. And they're not tapping them because it's not a priority. They're prioritizing what they need to do inside, which, you know, I'm not going to say um, isn't a worthy cause because, my God, we know we need that attention there. But you need to coordinate what's happening in the greater community and what's the impression of your community, I think, as well. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yes. I mean, you know, as you were talking, it just reminds me of, like, how do – how did I get started in this? Well, I took my saxophone into a nursing home, you know, completely naive, having never been in one. And suddenly my life has changed and I'm working in a degree on gerontology. You know, I mean, it just turned my whole life around. And I'm wondering how many people in the field of aging started as a volunteer. So, you know, we're faced with, you know, the challenge of hiring people and encouraging people, inspiring people to work with older adults. Well, what's the gateway? Well, it's the volunteer piece. Um, one of the things that uh, I realized <clears throat> as um, uh, I was going through this experience was the people that we recruited, and we screened, by the way, 
you know, the people concerned about that. We screamed. I mean, um, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but our attrition happened right up front. And I, I kind of used the Marine motto, we only take a few good ones. Mm-hmm. And so we screened heavily for commitment, reliability, can they think on their feet, uh, and so on. There was a f- few things that we screened for and um, because, or c- because of the reliability. That's, you know, they have to be there, you know, uh, and they have to be able to be counted on. Well, anyway, uh, what we found out was those people went back to their communities, their workplace, their churches, and they said, hey, you've got to come and see this. You've got to get involved in this. This is the real deal. And we even wound up with uh, a major corporation, uh, the CEO. Uh, we honored them because they were donating uh, printing costs. You know, we were able to print our brochures and training manuals and things. That was all being donated by them. And uh, so we recognized them at a, a banquet. And uh, the CEO came to the uh, podium to receive the uh, award. And he said, this is really a great thing. He said, I want my employees to go through this training, and I'll pay for it. And that happened. And so it becomes a, it becomes a conduit. We had volunteers. I had a gal leave a major corporation. She was a, a controller, and she became a bookkeeper for a nursing home in her town because she found meaning there. I mean, that's a, that's a heck of a transition. And then mm-hmm. um, people went on to become activity directors, CNAs. So not only is it a way to, to take some of the pressure off of the staff, but it becomes a recruiting tool as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, how else can you – the stigma of the nursing home, you know, you go out on the street and you say nursing home, people on the street are going to go, uh-huh, we have a place to avoid and what you have to do is get them in the door and give them some of these great experiences, and that undoes, that, that uh, uh, mitigates the ageist thinking and the stigma that people associate with uh, nursing homes. So, yes, I think community involvement is, I mean, it, it does so many things, uh, and it changes the volunteer. I mean, look what happened to me, and... And I've had people say to me, it said, man, this has really changed the way I see life. I, I hug my wife a little more. I talk to my kids a little differently. And so it really has a profound impact, not only on the people in the nursing home and the people working in the nursing home, but the volunteers themselves. So I totally, I totally agree. You know, my mom was in a nursing home for 14 years. And wow. um and, and it was a long time. And there was a point where I, uh, um, it was it was actually in the in the beginning. Um, I guess you could say I was one of their worst nightmares because I was all over everything, and I and I had a lot no, of opinions yeah. and a lot of thoughts. And I'll never forget. And neither will the administrator. One day, uh, it was announced that we were we had gotten together and we were. Um, how did it work? We were, they were talking about um, doing some, some redecorating um, landscaping in the front. And I said, well, you know, I'm looking at uh, putting in a waterfall in my backyard. And they're like, oh, we could never afford that. And I'm like, really, they're not that expensive. And so I was talking to the staff about it. And they went back to the administrator and the administrator said, okay, if you guys want to make a committee, see what you can come up with. And we were able to put in this beautiful waterfall and patio and gardens. And I mean, it was just, it was really something else because we worked together and we just didn't assume that it was out of the budget. It's like, let's explore this. And I remember when they were adjusting um, because they they needed more transitional care to, to be able to make money to kind of survive as a community. And the decision was they were going to put all of the regular people that lived there and were never going to get out, they were going to have the view of the back alley. And then all the transitional people who were going to be there a couple of weeks to a couple of months were going to have this beautiful view of the waterfall. And I just went off 
on the director or the administrator. And I said, this is so outrageous. I said, you mm-hmm. are not dealing with quality of life at all. Your transitional care can get up and walk around. Some of these people can't. And they're going to look at a, at a little teeny, you know, basically driveway and a fence. I said, that is offensive to me as a daughter. And I, and I really gave him a mm-hmm. hard time. He called up his supervisor and within two weeks, they planted in this little strip that was maybe two and a half, maybe three feet wide between the driveway and the fence, these beautiful, beautiful plantings that come up every year. And, you know, there's bird feeders and the squirrels are out there. And it, it's made such a difference. But Doug, who was the administrator at the time, he said, oh, he said, I felt like I was two inches tall when you got done with me. And he said, but everything you said made sense, Lori. And so he brought it to his supervisor. And and he said that was a changing point for us as a company in how we viewed, how we served. And, you know, from that point on, I mean, I, I got very involved. And so did so did a lot of others. I mean, there was a one gal who is a master gardener, and she took care of all the plantings on the whole campus. She loved it. Wow. Saved up a ton of money yeah. to do that. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, got feedback. I I did education for them, and I did some, um, uh, some support groups for family. But I wasn't going to do it the way they'd always done it because it hadn't been successful. And so we just made little mm-hmm. tweaks. You know, looking at it from an outside perspective, and and to me, I think that's one of the the great things about volunteerism or collaborations when people are passionate, when they really want to be there. You get creative ideas that are endless and make life easier and better for everyone. And and I don't think that communities. Um, always recognize the value. I mean, it's a total culture shift, not just for the volunteers, not just for the residents, but the staff. The staff seem you know, to have positions as well. I haven't mentioned the staff yet, but uh, my comments from the staff was, where did you find these people, and can you send us more? Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, when that when that nurse or that CNA sees a trained volunteer, and I'm and I emphasize the word trained, screened and trained. This isn't the, just somebody that walked in, but somebody that's really made a commitment. But anyway, when you see the nurse and the CNA sees that exchange going on, they get a lift from it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have any research yet to back this up, but my money's on that it improves retention rates because that nurse goes home tired, but knowing that Mrs. Smith had a visitor today that really met some of those emotional and uh, psychological needs, you know? And so um, that's kind of the road I'm headed on. One of the things I want to say uh, as you're talking, uh, you're right. The volunteers, like for example, at Baycrest, I keep bringing them up. They do not pay me. I don't work for Baycrest. Um, but when I need a nursing home, that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, but uh, seriously, uh, they, ha- they have volunteers working at every level. They have a committee that does program development. They have retired accountants that are doing data analysis on the programs that they've put in place. And this is all volunteer. And they're unionized. So what that means is is that um, the union worker and the volunteer are working side by side. And so one of the things that I'll hear is is that, well, you know, we're unionized. Well, Baycrest, when they write a job description, they sit down with the union leaders and they write it together. And so everybody knows what that volunteer can and cannot do. And, um, you know, so... Uh, I'm getting off a little bit, but the idea is that it's very intentional and it doesn't happen by accident. 
You cannot. I had a volunteer. I had an administrator. He said, "Okay, I want to start a volunteer program, and uh, I've got this part-time activity director, and uh, I'm going to add this to her list." And I said, "Save your time." I said, "In six months, it will crash and burn." I said, "Because it cannot happen that way. It has to be an intentional effort uh, by someone that's been trained to do it." And uh, so you cannot have, and that's what's going on in a lot of the nursing homes is it's an add-on and it's not seen as viable because they're not really doing what needs to be done. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I'm not disparaging the staff. I mean, I walked into a nursing home not long ago and the activities director came out of the kitchen. They were doing the dishes. And it's like, okay, that's great. Who's running the program? And, you know, he, they said I am. <laughs> so it's like, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff going like that going on. And um, so it has to be something that's intentional. It has to be led by a, what I call a director of volunteer engagement. And uh, it, that person should sit right beside the director of nursing and they should work together to meet the physical and the biological, or excuse me, the emotional and psychological needs of that resident. And so the nursing staff are going to take care of the medical piece of it, and the volunteers are going to take care of that social piece. And you put that together, and you, you're going to have a premier uh, nursing home. And um, what I'm working on right now, uh, Lori, and I hope to get it published this year, uh, but I will be doing a presentation uh, through the American Society on Aging uh, later this year. Um, I completed a study and I have connected quality measures with volunteer activities. And I'm just really excited about this. Um, nursing homes that are providing personalized cares through their volunteer program are using less drugs to manage people, less antipsychotics, fewer UTIs, fewer falls. And that goes to star rating. And so mm-hmm. you put in a premier, you put in a premier program. Uh, it comes back to you in your star rating. And uh, I don't know if people know what I'm talking about, but the CMS, the the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, they rate nursing homes. If you go to Nursing Home Compare, Google that, you can look at nursing homes, and they're rated. They get one to five stars, one being not so good and five being excellent. And you look at the nursing homes that have premier volunteer programs led by a professional volunteer manager, and you look at their star rating, and you can see that it makes a difference. And, uh, you know, and that's the way people shop for nursing homes. They go to nursing home mm-hmm. compare, and they look up the nursing homes in their area, and if you got a one star, you're not going to be at the top of the list. And so, uh, uh, you know, I know the administrators. I Listen, by the way, I'm not faulting administrators because I know what they're up against. They've got to keep the beds full. I understand that. Um, but I'll tell you, putting in a direct, paying for and putting in a director of volunteers will come back to you in keeping your beds full uh, and keeping people alive longer. It'll, it will. And so anyway, I'm, hopefully I'll have that published by the end of the year if I can live so long. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, yeah. I think that that is so incredibly important though. Um, and, Again, I know everyone is kind of in this overwhelmed state right now, and I understand that. Um, I, I mean, I really, truly do. But, you know, you've got to look at end game. You know, you have to look at big picture when you're doing some of this stuff. And there are so many people right now that really, really want to volunteer. They want to help. And people are like, well, Nobody can come in, but they can make calls. They can make cards. They can knit uh, prayer shawls. They could make a uh, face mask. They could um, arrange music outside or children to come and draw in the parking lot with chalk. Um, There's lots of different things that they could do. They could do, you know, window visits that are scheduled and and, um, supervised and just so people don't feel so alone. Um, there are many, many things and many talents that people have that yep. we're not tapping into. And, you know, they've got mm-hmm. the time and they want to do something. They, they also know the need 
and how severe it is. And they're scared for if it's not their own personal loved one in there, they probably have a friend who has someone living in the community or they're um, maybe thinking, oh, my gosh, what if that was me in there? What would I do? How would I be treated? And, you know, they want to help, but they can't help if we don't show them how. If we don't, you know, it's it's not their responsibility to just come pound on your door and say, this is what I want to do. Um, they, they need to be invited in. You know, there needs to be a, a welcoming and, and, like you said, some training of, you know, how is this going to work? Um, but in the long run, it's going to soothe hearts, I think, of everybody in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um Again, you know, how many how many times is somebody calling for help when they just want somebody to talk to? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're feeling disconnected. And uh so, you know, this is where the volunteer and I'll take it a I'll take it a step further. We can't maybe this time around, but you could have a small uh cadre of volunteers, maybe five or six volunteers that have gone through special training, and I know these, there are people out there that would do this, they would go through special training, and even in the midst of a pandemic, they could put on the protective gear, they could go into the nursing home and hold hands. Mm-hmm. I just know that that, that could be done. And, uh, I mean, we have volunteer firemen putting on all kinds of gear, walking into fires, you know. Can we train somebody to walk into a nursing home and hold hands during a pandemic? I think so. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know I... There's probably people out there screaming right now, but um, I just know from what my own experience, we have people in our communities that are stellar, and um, they they would do something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So the thing I think that I really want to stress here again, this doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't happen in a couple of weeks. You don't build a program like this. You know, the Baycrest program has been around for 30 years. You know, and so we have some time. And the the picture is, Lori, is that regardless of the uh, pandemic or any other issues that we might be facing, by the year 2050, there's going to be somewhere around 100 million people in this country over the age of 65, half of which, half, will need some kind of long-term care. Mm-hmm. Right now, we have about... 20 million people over the age of 65. That's kind of rough numbers. That's going to multiply five times over the next several decades. Right now, the uh, Bureau of uh, Labor Statistics reported that we're going to need, by the year 2026, we're going to need around 8 million long-term care workers. And right now, we have about a million and a half. So... You know, I mean, it's not like it's not like things are, uh, are the need is going away. It's going to escalate way beyond where it is right now. And uh, mm-hmm. so, if we don't involve the community, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, is what we're doing. And mm-hmm. um, again, going back to you know, recruiting, mitigating ageist thinking, uh, and stigma about the nursing home. Uh, helping retention rates, providing, and you hit it, quality of life. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's great. You know, I had a woman one time, I'll tell you, the residents will tell you what they need. I had a woman one time say to me, she held up her little pill cup. The nurse came over and they, she had to take her medicine. And so they had a little, those little paper Dixie cups, you know, and there was a, three or four pills in there. She held that up to me and she went, you see, this is what they think we need. She goes, what you're doing is what we need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, you know, uh, uh, and again, you know, uh, some of the things, the other, another one that sticks in my mind is a uh, woman said to me, she goes, you know, I have a lot of people around me here, nurses, aides. She goes, but there's no one here just for me. Mm-hmm. And so just, be, just having a lot of people around doesn't mean much. I, I tell the story, uh, I was at Arrowhead Stadium one time in Kansas City for a football game. And this is long before cell phones. And I went up to the stand to get a hot dog, and I came back, and I lost my uh, – I got lost. I wasn't sure where I was. And there I was, surrounded by 80,000 people, but I needed to find one. 
<laughs> my ride home, <laughs> you know. And so it was a very lonely feeling in that moment. So you can be surrounded by 80,000 people and feel very alone. And um, so, again, you know, the volunteer really can address that. And, again, I just stress, you know, we talk about training. This isn't, you know, this is the training that volunteers go through, uh, that we put them through. They went through 16 hours of training, and then they had to go through uh, three more uh, hours of training each year to maintain their status. Mm-hmm. And so, and they were doing it. They were doing it. They wanted that. And the research there's all kinds of research out there that shows volunteers not only want initial training, but they want ongoing training. They want to grow in that experience as well. And so uh, this isn't something that happens by accident. It's not an afterthought. It's a critical part of the delivery of care. And there's places, the UK is light years ahead of us on this. I hate to say that, but they really are. I mean, they're just doing amazing stuff over there when it comes to uh, social isolation. They have a minister of loneliness. I, know. I mean, everybody kind of laughed about that, but it's not a laughing matter. I mean, one of the really sad statistics is that the highest rate of suicide is among people over the age of 65. Mm-hmm. You know, no sense of purpose. Why am I here? Why doesn't God take me home? I'm, I'm sure people have heard people say that. And yeah. I have no reason to be here. And um, and so, you know, you, we have, you know, the only time it was uh, less was during the uh, 2008 crash. Uh, but uh, people and people over the age of 85 uh, have the highest rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, women, um, women have the highest attempted and men have the highest uh, successful. And um, so... You know, men use guns, women try to overdose on their medications. So, mm-hmm. and that's a very sad statistic. Um, oh, definitely. Um, so this lo- business of loneliness and social isolation is not some casual thing. And uh, so, anyway, um, that's that. No, I I, uh, I totally understand. Now, I know that there's, a, if I remember correctly, there's a, a program in the hospitals called Healthy Life Elder Program or Health, where volunteers are trained yes. to be with older adults as well. And, boy, I would really yes. like to see more of those, especially when it comes to dementia, because when someone is hospitalized, it is so difficult for them. And they really need somebody there with them 24-7 to kind of guide them yeah. through the, you know, what is happening and to keep them calm. And, uh, and so many people have such a difficult time because it's so stressful and so scary that, you know, they, their progression um, can really um, just take a big jaunt ahead and they don't, you know, always recover when they mm-hmm. come home after that. And, yeah, uh, you know. thanks for mentioning help, too, because that, to me, that's a model that could be uh, adapted to nursing homes, the help model. Mm-hmm. And uh, Healthy Life Elder Program, uh, Sharon Inouye uh, developed that. And, uh, yeah, that, and they're doing everything. Those volunteers go through all kinds of training. They commit to four-hour shifts, and uh, they're there 24-7. Mm-hmm. There's always somebody with a person you know, and of course that's a little different environment, but the idea is that there's volunteers that will do that. Yeah. So we, we don't need the volunteers there 24 seven in nursing homes necessarily, but there are people that would make that kind of commitment. Um, there's another good one too. And I'm uh, uh, happy to talk about these. Um, Elizabeth Knox in New Zealand, Elizabeth Knox hospital and nursing home, uh, the CEO there, Jill Woodward, 250 beds, 800 volunteers. Wow. <laughs> That's four people per resident. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. I said, and I said to her, I said, how did you do that? She goes, well, you start by hiring a great volunteer manager. <laughs> and uh, and question for you there. Yeah. What, what makes a great manager of volunteers? Um, well, I think it goes, you know, of course, towards um, personality. They have to have a really uh, 
interesting mix of being having administrative skills and being very creative at the same time. They also have to understand marketing. Uh, there's the, the the business of volunteer motivation, so they have to they have to be able to really uh, understand people and uh, feel comfortable uh, working with people from a variety of backgrounds. And uh, most of all, they should be trained. They should have some kind of a, a certificate or certification in volunteer management and um, because there's so many moving parts to it. It's not just recruiting a volunteer and then giving them training. There's also um, retention. We have to deal with that. We have to deal with um, marketing. Um, and uh, when I say uh, um, um, marketing, uh, you know, how do I get the word out to the community? Um, and then uh, they have to understand um, um, uh, any number of things when it comes to uh, data collection and data analysis. Well, mm-hmm. that sounds exciting. You know, that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but when you look at the good programs, that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they institute a, a new program, a new volunteer effort. Then they collect data on it. They have a baseline. This is where we were. We looked at depression scores, for example. And now we're going to look at it six weeks from now. Then we're going to look at it again 12 weeks from now. And they're doing data analysis. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, who does that? You know, and so, you know, if the um, volunteer manager doesn't understand how important that is, when the CEO asks that director, what impact are you making? And you talk about an ice cream social or um, – and uh, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with ice cream socials. But the idea is we talk about the event. We yep. talk about – we don't talk about the impact that the event made. We don't mm-hmm. talk about, okay, I have a – and, you know, everybody counts hours, right? So I turned in uh, 10,000 volunteer hours. Well, so what? What impact did that have? What impact did it have on the community? What impact did that have on the, the resident? Um, what impact did it have on our staffing? You know, and so there, that impact statement, and the CEO is going to say, show me the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got all kinds of heartwarming stories. But the, the CEO who has to keep the doors open, how do yep. we do that? Yep. And uh, uh, so – Again, uh, the volunteer manager has to have that piece in place as well. And that's an opportunity for a graduate student, for example. Uh, graduate students that are working in uh, uh, their statistics courses and that, they'd be happy to exercise some of their newfound skills. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing in, in different places. They have uh, volunteers that are collecting data and volunteers that are doing the analysis. Yep. So it doesn't have to be the volunteer manager doesn't have to do it themselves, but they just have to understand how important that is. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's who needs to be in charge. And that's why I say it needs to be, it really needs to be a full-time position. Now I know that, you know, people are going to scream again, you know, because how are we going to pay for that? But it's going to come back to you on the back, back side. You're going to have a better star rating. You're going to have a better community image. Uh, families, just as you mentioned, I had a woman um, call me and she said, my father is in a nursing home. I live several hundred miles away. Do you have a volunteer that could visit my father? And we found somebody and the volunteer visited with the father for like three years until he passed away. And that daughter, I mean, she was so ecstatic. And she made significant donations to the nursing home. And I mean, it was just you know, amazing to see that transaction. But the idea is, is that uh, whatever you, the, whatever costs you have up front, it's going to come back to you in your improved community image, improved quality measures, and even your star rating. So. Well, and, and I think one of the things that people really need to consider now, because there is so much negative um, voice out there about uh, community living with COVID and, you know, how are people being cared for? And of course, you know, we, we see these little spotlights of the good things, but 
the negative things that you know we're seeing with body counts and you know all kinds yeah. of all kinds of jazz uh, really has families wondering you know do I pull somebody out do I bring them home um, yeah. I don't want to go there yeah. you know they're looking at their own life down the road I mean there's a lot of conversations being had and you know I believe communities need to get ahead of that and they need to really be doing some um, branding protection. And mm-hmm. in, in that playing field, um, one of the other things that I um, am really pushing for with a lot of communities, and there's there's still a lot of resistance out there, is educating families and having support yeah. for them. And they're like, we just don't have the staff. And it's like, you need to have that out there. I mean, there's there's people like myself and yourself that I'm sure could do a lot for them and um, mm-hmm. and let them handle what's going on inside, but being able to kind of counsel and educate families and not make them feel abandoned and alone. Because when they feel abandoned and alone, it's not a good thing. And it's not going to be a good thing for them um, if they want to hear that yeah. now or not. But it, it is happening out there and they are feeling very scared and very frightened. And, you know, if, right. if you can list them and support them and, some of them will turn into some of these these volunteers, you know, these volunteer force yep. that you talk about. They they want to help, but they need to know how. And it would be another level added to even being able to put that together to to hear what could they do and to ease the burden on staff in terms of how is that coordinated. Um, right. But I think a very, very important thing. Now, in your book, you talk about five excuses why it can't be done. And, you know, we only have like 13 minutes left. I can't believe how how fast this wow. time is. But I think it's a fascinating conversation. Um, but I want to make sure that you have time to tell us what you see are the five common excuses out there for people not to do this. And how do we change that mindset? Well, um, I'll start at the end. You change the mindset by uh, really taking your volunteer uh, programming seriously. You can't just do it half-baked. You don't put air in the tire, it's not going to work, you know, so don't even begin, you know. Um, But the five excuses, and really, you know, maybe that I kind of did that for the book, you know, but – What's going on is, is first of all, that uh, volunteers are unreliable, unsustainable, and risky. Well, if you don't train them, if you don't properly screen them, and you don't give them a job description and clearly express your expectations, then you're going to have unreliable people that may or may not show up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you do proper screening uh, and um, uh, background checks and proper training, you know, I think I mentioned that earlier. Our attrition happened right up front, and it's out, and that was the hardest part of the whole thing. Out of the people that uh, came to us wanted to volunteer at this level. Now, I'm not talking about entertainers or walk-ins or people that are going to call bingo. This is a whole different level. I call it the super volunteer. Our attrition rate for the super volunteer was 60% right up front. And I'll tell you what, though, the 40% that got through our screening and training program are diamonds. These are people that, as you mentioned earlier, they're coming to you with ideas. I had a volunteer actually call the administrator and say, hey, I want to meet with you. And she brought three or four other volunteers that we had trained with her. And so the administrator walked into the meeting thinking like, oh, boy, you know, what's going on? And he said, okay, so what do you need? And the volunteer said, no, we're here to find out what else do you need? Mm-hmm. And so it's a whole different mindset. And these are people that show up when they're supposed to show up. As for liability, people will say, well, what about liability? Well, what about it? You do your risk management. You identify and write policies and clear job descriptions as to what volunteers are to do and not do, and then you provide the proper training to do that. And then labor unions. Well, Yes, that's right. <clears throat> We're not trying to promote free labor. And so just like they do at Baycrest and other places, you sit down with your union reps and you write jobs descriptions together. 
and you so that everybody's on the same page. And uh, then, of course, there are policies within the medical community that preclude volunteers from doing certain things. And so we have to really address the medical grip that's on healthcare right now. And I think that's happening. As people are starting to understand, we need to meet the psychological and the social needs as much as we need to meet the physical needs. And then finally, uh, the nursing home budget isn't going to allow for paying a professional. Well, what are you, what are you uh, um, losing by not doing that? And you're struggling to keep your staff. You're struggling to keep your doors open. Uh, you're struggling uh, to find new staff. And you put in a, a well-run, well-managed volunteer program, and you have a recruiting tool, and then you have a, a uh, staff support, as I mentioned earlier. So stigma, liability, uh, changes in policy, labor unions, and the budget. Those are the five things that I hear most often, and they can all be addressed. So, yeah, well, and I would, I would say for <laughs> paying for the volunteer, I, I would think there would be some grant money out for that too, in terms because you really you're talking about in, you're talking about quality of life and and you're talking about um, increased engagement, you know, overall. Right within the community. Um, and I, I just think that that is, you know, I mean, talk about programmatic, you know, you don't, yeah, that's right. kind, of, kind of the base of it. So I think sometimes it's the words that we use, um, you know, and we devalued, oh, they're just a volunteer. And it's like they yeah. can enhance a program and a culture um, to no <sighs> end, you know, if you're willing to mm-hmm. get, Creative and 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 allow their creative juices too. You know, listen to, you know, what can they mm-hmm. offer? How how could that be worked in? And and maybe not not every idea that comes to you is going to work. But you know what? It doesn't with your staff either, and it doesn't with your own ideas. Some things work and some mm-hmm. things don't. And but the only way you are really going to know is if you try. And and I think we right. are in such a state where it is a shame to see communities not try this because the, like you said earlier the ones that are doing this are quite effective and in really making yeah. a, a big big difference um, but you know change is scary to many yeah and um, you know it's again going to the money you know the Baycrest they have 2,000 volunteers they have two paid staff they have the director of volunteers and then they have the volunteer coordinator and all mm-hmm. the rest of it is done by volunteers. They have volunteer yep. receptionists, volunteer interviewers, volunteer recruiters, volunteer trainers. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And uh, so it, it's a great model. And again, you know, I don't get any kind of endorsement or any kind of, you know, remuneration from Baycrest. It, you know, I've been searching the world for great programs and I bumped into these guys and it's just, I mean, it blows your mind when you see what they're doing up there. Um, but uh, again, it doesn't happen by accident. And as far as the ROI, you want to keep your beds full and you want people to live longer, then you address their social and psychological needs. Mm-hmm. And, and that will happen. And people, your star rating, your star rating improves. And so, again, I mean, that's a whole different crowd, consumer now. I mean, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't have the Internet. Uh, now yep. I can go online and I can read, I can read your survey. And mm-hmm. if it's a bad survey, I'm not going to put your mom. I'm not. I'm not going to call you. you yeah. Know? And uh, and so the volunteer uh, workforce can become a calling card, as well. So. I have anyway, a question for you. Now, in, terms of, <laughs> in terms of staff ratio, that's always a big one. You know, people want to know who, you know, what the staff ratio is. And I mean, it, like any number, staff ratio can be um, jimmied around uh, to you know, listing administrative professionals or even, you know, maintenance and housekeeping that might not really interact with the residents, but they're worked into some of those ratios. I've seen it over and over again. Um, How how Mm -hmm. do people work with um, volunteer ratios? Is there another tier to that or is it incorporated? How do people speak to that? Because I think that that's an important factor as well um, for people to know. 
that this that this is happening. Plus, it opens the door for maybe um, them to volunteer and get involved. You know, mm-hmm. when when it's the in process. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, frankly, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, but I will say this uh, anecdotally, I know that um, now. First of all, I want to very quickly say we're not talking about just your walk-in volunteer or entertainers or people coming in to do religious services, you know, and and that's all needed, by the way. I'm not disparaging any of that. I'm talking about another level, the super volunteers, what I call them. And you don't need a hundred of those. You put five or six of those in your nursing home and they will make a significant impact. And uh, again, you know, getting comments back, from staff, where do you find these people? Can you send us more? Um, and so on and so on. And so, um, <clears throat> again, uh, these are people that are highly committed. They're self-starters. They want to be trained, and they're going to they're they're going to uh, have a very uh, high level of commitment and reliability for you. So, um, I'm not sure if I answered the question. <laughs> No, no, like I said, I was just, I was curious if you've heard anyone talk about, um, you know, using volunteers as a, as a ratio, um, in t- because it, it is, I guess it's just another level that I think people could, could add to um, in terms of, of saying, you know, who all is, is on campus. And, um, and I think, you know, when you have, you know, when you have significant amounts of volunteers too, uh, that says something too, because those people don't have to be there. You know, <laughs> they're there no. because they want to be there, and that's a huge, right. huge difference. Uh, that's a really good point too, because uh, you know we talk about liability. Well, these people are very conscientious, and so uh, there's going to be a lot less issue with that volunteer than there might be somebody that's there for a paycheck. And again, mm-hmm. I'm not disparaging the staff. You know, because I know what they're up against. But, mm-hmm. again, though, that volunteer that's gone through that level of training and made that serious of a commitment, they're going to be very conscientious about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And, exactly. um, again, you know, you know, again, I'm, I keep stressing, this isn't, uh, uh, for example, having that professional director, what they could create a ladder, a progression ladder. They, maybe they are a walk-in. And mm-hmm. the director recognizes, hey, this is somebody that really could be doing a lot more. And so they step them through a, um, a, an advancement um, mm-hmm. type uh, ladder so they can advance in their volunteer role. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, and I'm not disparaging walk-ins or musicians or bingo or, you know, God bless bingo, you know. But, I mean, uh, all of that is necessary. But mm-hmm. – more than anything, um, at this point, we need people that are uh, that can come in and really uh, support the staff and really support the uh, resident and be a resource for the family. I mean, uh, families, you know, if you know somebody at this caliber is visiting your mom or dad, that's going to give you a very uh, deep sense of uh, relief. Yeah, uh, I, I hey, there's some, there's. I, I want to I want to catch up because I want to make sure that we get your contact information to people because we only have a minute ah. left. So your website is volunteerleader.com, V-O-L-U-N-C-H-E-E-R, and then leader. And they can reach you at that uh, same dot com. Just put uh, Paul at volunteerleader.com. Thank you. So so much for your time. This was just a great, great conversation, and I, I wish you the best. And I hope uh, many communities um, see light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, and decide to collaborate and really put a program together for volunteer leaders. Thank you so much, Dr. Polkowski. Bye now. Thank you, Lori. Thank you very much.
Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.